talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. I want you can't tell me I keep it sexy daddy so I can't fail keep it gangster for the cowards so I give them hell call me misfit lips fit a gang of trash risk hello and welcome to it's good except it sucks a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe this time we're taking a look at She-Hulk Attorney at Law first seen in August 2022 when if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Partner Track, Hamster and Gretel, or Chad and JT Go Deep instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I made of She-Hulk Attorney at Law shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give her thoughts on She-Hulk Attorney at Law is academic Miriam Kent. Miriam, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at DrMarvel underscore. OK, so before we go any further, Miriam, what happens in She-Hulk Attorney at Law? She-Hulk, colon, Attorney at Law is a legal drama slash comedy, I guess, based on an eponymous character called She-Hulk, known in her civilian persona as Jennifer Walters. But essentially, she's Lady Hulk. Bruce Banner's cousin and it's about how she's a lawyer who doesn't really want to be a superhero and becoming accustomed to Hulk powers that she gets through accidentally absorbing Bruce's blood through some quite convoluted events. Okay well I'm guessing we'll get quite comprehensive answers to this but Miriam how much did you know about She-Hulk before you saw this? I knew a significant amount of details about the history of She-Hulk and the quite convoluted process that led to her creation which was quite a cynical kind of process. She stems from 1979, debuting in a comic called Savage She-Hulk, which was written by Stan Lee and also co-created by John Buscemel. Although Stan Lee actually only wrote one of those issues of that series. It was kind of a formality. A lot of it was about copyright. So there was a Hulk TV series that was doing its thing and creating you know, random characters. And it was pretty much a race between Marvel and the network that created this TV series to kind of create this Lady Hulk. And that's why they kind of rushed out this issue of She-Hulk to kind of beat the network to making that character. So it's all quite sort of cynical, quite sort of industrial practices that created that character. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned her debut because that's something I can really remember thinking that, well, I mean, she has in a way leapfrogged both of these characters in later years to become one of the iconic, you know, sort of liberated Marvel female characters. But initially she appeared in the wake of particularly Spider-Woman and as was Ms. Marvel, Captain Marvel, who both, I know those early strips kind of look clumsy in some regards now, but they were an attempt to tackle modern feminism and women's issues, not always in the right way, but at least they were trying. But I remember seeing the first She-Hulk strip in, I think it was in the UK, Daredevil, and it might have been around 1982, 1983. I'm feeling, even as a very young child, this is a bit woman in peril. There didn't seem to be very much more to either her or Jen at that stage other than female Hulk and timid lawyer and I think that's probably why they changed her origin story in this series from that original thing of her being a lawyer kidnapped by I think people working for
for a mobster who were trying to, I suppose, you know, get her out of the picture, basically. And that's when, after receiving a blood transfusion from Bruce, she discovers she is She-Hulk at that point. And here they've made it basically an off-the-cuff thing that they're in the car accident. But that's it. I think they've made the right call there, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you encountered this story in the 80s, which I guess was part of the kind of delay in getting those stories to the UK. But I mean, bearing in mind that it was the 70s. So, yeah, it is very kind of traditional, that, that initial kind of series. It's quite sort of standard superhero woman fare. But, you know, it was the 1970s. But even so, it was like second wave feminism was more or less in full swing. And there were other 70s media texts going on that were addressing kind of broader issues around feminism and women's roles in society, thinking about things like Charlie's Angels, for instance, which is like, I mean, nobody thinks it's like the epitome of feminist representation, but it was doing something, right? So She-Hulk does seem to be some kind of a response to these political shifts. She's a working woman. She's a lawyer. A lot of that was, as you say, happening with Ms. Marvel as well. People forget that Ms. Marvel was a direct response to second wave feminism. They're like citing Kate Millett in one of the issues. So it's like an overt reference to feminism, which kind of makes it fit into today's kind of post-Me Too context in a really interesting way as well. Well, that was something else I was going to bring up about the comics background, because obviously very, very quickly, She-Hulk developed into the character we're more familiar with now, and as was depicted in the series, of somebody very self-aware, sexually confident but insecure at the same time, and breaking the fourth wall continually, not just addressing the reader in the comics, but things like rampaging across adverts to get from one page to the next, tearing things up, arguing with the artist sometimes. When John Byrne left to work on another title, she tied him up and put him in the cupboard to try and get him to stay. Fired the narrator, I think, when guest appearing in Luke Cage. All kinds of things like that. But at the same time, while it was always a fun strip, while it was always very much tongue-in-cheek, it dealt with difficult issues as well. I mean, there are questions about consent raised in it. There are storylines involving sexual assault. There's the paparazzi take basically topless photos of her sunbathing. And there is actually, there's a famous issue where her and one of the writers debate whether posing nude in the strip would be empowering or just tawdry and giving male readers what they want. And so it's always been very progressive in that sense as well. Yeah, it's always been kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge about the potential for exploitation of these kinds of female characters and the sexualization and, and all of that. But it is very much kind of taking account of potential criticisms that might be aimed at it. And that is very much a kind of product of the 1980s comic book landscape in which, you know, superhero comics became more self-reflexive. They became allegedly, you know, grown up, highly self-aware, books like Watchmen, kind of commentaries on what the cultural role and function of the superhero was. In a way, that kind of allowed people like John Byrne, whose run was, you know, went down as this kind of legendary run on, on this character. These mechanisms, these industrial and kind of narrative mechanisms allowed them to kind of, in a way, get away with, you know, some of the more problematic aspects, while also kind of gesturing towards these broader kind of political shifts that were happening. So it's a real kind of rich text of complexity when it comes to those kind of feminist attributes. And she was quite a hit character, almost from the off, because one thing I will come back to is she does appear in the first Secret Wars. She was obviously that popular by that point. But there was an attempt when they made the following on from the 70s Incredible Hulk TV series, when they did TV movies in the late 80s, there was talk about introducing her into that, which never happened. But that spun into, this doesn't seem to be widely known, plans for a film starring Bridget Nielsen. Now, people probably fall out laughing at that, but I genuinely think, given what happened with big screen Marvel adaptations around them, and what we could have got, I think she might have been better, possibly, than the potential alternative. She would at least have had that nod 
hard on the weight of the camera sense to it and the sense of fun about it. It would not have ended up kind of a bleak drama where, you know, she doesn't actually turn into She-Hulk in it, which I can envisage happening. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen her as like a hard body action heroine like Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 or even like Ripley in Alien. I think that would have really fit into that era of filmmaking. I just think that the, the special effects weren't quite there. But yeah, we ended up with something a bit more kind of rubbery in appearance, I guess. Well, obviously, yes, we have ended up with this series now, which was originally announced in 2019 at that big sort of unveiling of Phase 4 where everything went wrong immediately after it because the entire world closed down. This, I think, was shunted to the back of the production order. And I think it benefited from that because so much thought has clearly gone into it. And the most interesting detail from the production side is the showrunner, essentially, was Jessica Gao, who were previously pitched for Captain Marvel, Black Widow and Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings. And hadn't been successful each time, but they'd noted that her pitch for Black Widow was, quote, basically a She-Hulk film featuring Black Widow. And so when She-Hulk went into production, they approached her and said, "Okay, what have you got? And she's come up with this fantastic series. There are some aspects of it that I will question as we go along, but I think with that extra time to work on it, with somebody who was clearly invested in the character and clearly was on board with what they wanted to do already, I think that really worked out in their favour. Yeah, there is a sense of passion for the character and you do, catching up with the kind of behind-the-scenes narratives that are in circulation, there was a lot of kind of adaptation to various contexts and various changes that were made. Like The number of episodes, I think, changed throughout and they decided they didn't need quite as many episodes as they had planned. So it was a labour of love, but also I think they were given quite a lot of freedom in a way. Yes, well, let's get this out of the way from the beginning. I did not expect them to go quite as deep in on the fourth wall breaking as they did. I mean, I thought it'd be limited to, you know, a Deadpool-style occasional aside to camera, but it went so much further. And we'll deal with this straight away. In the last episode, that actually fooled me when it loops back to the Disney Plus menu and she then kicks through it, demanding to see the upper echelons at Marvel. I really did think for a second what's happened as the cat walked on the remote. Now, I love that. And I love the fact that they made fun of the whole setup. They had a basically an AI representing Kevin Feige, who astutely, they wanted him to do the voice of that. And he declined on the basis that it would be pushing the joke too far. And I think that was the right decision. But what I'm wondering is, how would that have gone down? with When I say casual viewers, I mean people who watched it because they liked the Hulk or come in through one division or something else, which, you know, that has its moments of addressing the camera, don't get me wrong, but nothing had quite gone to this level yet. And I have heard, I would say, a mixed response to that final episode. That final episode, I know, had very mixed reactions. In fact, somebody has made a graph on Wikipedia that demonstrates critical reception for each episode. And the final episode just like plummets. I'm not entirely sure how accurate that graph is um, or who made it. <laughs> Something to bear in mind. I know it had mixed reactions, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. It didn't quite fool me. I kind of had an inkling of what was going on. I'm also a bit worried about what's going to happen when Disney Plus kind of inevitably revamps its interface. That last episode isn't going to age too well, I think. But it was fun and it was definitely harking back to breaking of the fourth wall in the comics and that tongue-in-cheek aspect of the character from then. 
it was kind of throughout the series, but like on a more low key level. And then they just ramped it up in those final few episodes, which I thought was great. I thought the series came to life in those final few episodes, but I seem to be in the minority. No, I absolutely loved them as well. And what I also loved throughout it was the whole continual thing of messing around with the show title, episode by episode, with the end boards, with everything like that. It reminded me of the way. Have you ever seen any of the Monty Python albums or books where the comedy writer Joel Morris? uses the phrase total comedy about it and that they even mess with the copyright date and things like that and I love just the sense of going in on those small details just to not just build the joke but build the world around it and I really appreciated that but that seems to pass a lot of people by yeah I mean the story world has become extended into the production realm which I don't I'm not sure if that's happened too frequently in the past but I thought it was really fun I also just appreciated the little kind of representation of like the writer's room and when she meets Kevin and, and I thought it was great and before we discuss anyone else in it we should really really single out Tatiana Maslany for particular praise. I know a lot of people have known her from Orphan Black. I actually mainly knew her from Parks and Recreation where she had a recurring role in a couple of episodes but I think this is a role that she's just completely inhabited. She's just gone in she's made it her own while making it relatable and faithful to the original character at the same time and I think she's pulled it off really really well. Yeah Tatiana Maslany can really do no wrong in anything. She did play like what was it like nine or ten characters at once in Orphan Black so I think she's got what it takes to play a character like this. So yeah, Tatiana Maslany is good. The character design and the rendering of her physicality was weird. And they had to keep cutting away during the transformation scenes. But then they also draw attention to that eventually because of self-aware and stuff. But I thought the scenes where she's in, you know, the green persona could have been a bit less weird. I'm not even sure how to articulate that. But she was very good. And also, I think particularly worthy of praise is Jamila Jamil, who, honestly, this is true, when her casting was announced a lot of the reaction on places like twitter was kind of what she doesn't act she'll ruin titania but a she has acted in quite a few things and b it's the fact they redeveloped the character because again at the same time as i like the way a lot of the characterizations in the films and tv series are faithful to the originals i like it just as much when they reinvent somebody who is not suitable for that medium and in the comics titania obviously her backstory which i don't know if they'll even do it on screen was essentially that she offered to work for Doctor Doom and be given superpowers so she became you know incredibly strong and her friend became Volcana who's basically volcanic I've described her on this before as being dressed like an escape cast member of Gladiators and really she just loves being quote a bad girl and hates Jen and that's pretty much her defining traits but obviously I don't think that would have flown in this so they've made her into kind of that character plus you know an influencer like an Instagrammer who has somehow come across super strength but still not 100% sure why and sees people like Jen as a threat to her position rather than just someone she hates for personal reasons and she again has inhabited that role brilliantly. Yeah and it was definitely like a contemporary adaptation of that character and characters shift between you know different media iterations all the time it's it's just one of those things that, that happens when you're taking characters that are decades old you need to kind of transplant them into a modern era and Titania was also a nice nod to the copyright fiasco that facilitated the creation of She-Hulk in the first place. So again, that was a nice sort of in-reference, a nice kind of self-reflexive moment. Jennifer Walters, Esquire, lawyer, millennial, searching for a way to balance a career and her personal life. Then an accidental dose of gamma-radiated blood alters her body chemistry. 
And now, when Jennifer Walters grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by online trolls. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. She is provoked into a rampage that has landed her in prison, and now she is seen only for the raging spirit that dwells within her. Well, yes, the copyright gags do bring me on to the fact that so much was represented in this series, in amongst all the jokes, in amongst the sitcom format, because let's not forget, it is essentially a sitcom, which they had intended to do one previously for ABC based on the new Warriors, and for a number of reasons that didn't happen. This is the closest so far to an outright sitcom, and yet in amongst all that, as well as dealing with the issue of intellectual property and how it implied it might be that much harder for women to fight for it than for men, which I think is possibly reflecting the experience of some people who worked on the comics over the years. There are all kinds of issues brought in, like the patronising attitude of men in the workplace, when women are suddenly more successful or literally powerful than them, and their obsession with public image and how things will reflect on them. There's personal phone data theft, which there is a very relevant modern issue. All manner of things like that. There's a quite brave thing they do. They imply in the montage of dating sequences that there's a right and wrong context for in the Bertie Commons objectification. There's all kinds of explanation of boundaries. And it's done in the context of a fun series about a woman who goes giant and green. And I know some of my female friends I've spoken to have been absolutely blown away by this and said they've never seen those kind of issues tackled that honestly in this kind of way before. And we've not even got Onto the big issue we'll come back to. It's sort of slipped under the radar, but at the same time, a lot of men have not been very happy about it, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that a series that, you know, centres on a, a male character can pretty much do all of these things that are, you know, quite political in terms of, you know, following a vigilante in, like, contemporary society that's, you know, polarised, right? You've got, like, the Punisher going around being the Punisher, essentially. All of this is fine. It's like, that's all fine. Characters like Moon Knight are fine. Loki is fine. But then something like this comes along and the internet just blows up because she's like there's something a little bit you know characterizing men as not always that great in the trailer yes that's exactly what i mean i've got in my notes would they be applauding it if it was a series made by and about a man which you know it's a question i think kind of answers itself but the reaction has sometimes been a little depressing i mean i can compare it to i don't often get negative feedback about these i think generally they're a little too off the radar for the sort of people that just want to shout at somebody to listen to but I can say in an almost kind of direct parallel I still get angry comments now about a review I wrote in 2018 of one of Jodie Whittaker's first episodes of Doctor Who it's that knee-jerk reaction that just makes me a bit it just I just recoil at it I mean why fly off the handle like that just because somebody's made a series that I can't even say it's not for you it's just that you're not bothering because you've got a weird prejudice it's very weird and the exposure of these opinions even though they're probably not the mainstream opinions is also quite alarming it's like if you type in she-hulk into youtube you just get reams and reams and reams of like half hour long rants about you know some guy who doesn't like the series for whatever reason and those reasons i have listened to some of them in part 
bad. For most reasons, I'm mostly just like, well, I just didn't really like it, which isn't really an argument, you know. I think maybe the, the real question we should be asking is why texts like She-Hulk and Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel provoke such visceral reactions against them by certain pockets of Marvel viewers. And, you know, as I said, things like Loki and Moon Knight, you know, they're fine. Why do the standards, you know, seem to be so much higher for the female-based series? And that's also reflected in, I'm not sure how widely this has been noticed, but there are some male stars of the Marvel Cinematic Universe who have, shall we say, difficult political views, are well known for it, are very outspoken about it, nothing is said about them. But who are the ones that come in for all of the abuse? It's Brie Larson, it's Letitia Wright, and Imani Villani. They've done nothing really apart from having an opinion to be a woman, but they seem to be ones that are hounded. Yeah, definitely. Overall, it, it shouldn't really be a problem that, like, incels are being portrayed in these kinds of series as being not that great. You know, that shouldn't be, like, a revolutionary statement, but somehow it is. Yes, because the whole storyline about the intelligentsia who, basically, the guy who leads them is unhappy because a date with Jen went badly is the long and short of it. It's a little like a certain gentleman that's causing problems at the moment, having bought a social media company just to prove that he can. There are some intentional echoes of him in there, but that really is an accurate representation of, you know, the discussions you were referring to that are that easy to find online. And yet, even though it's just holding a mirror up to it, that seems to have caused even further anger. The idea that you cannot comment on it just doesn't make sense to me yeah it is baffling and you know i think the series portrayed those kinds of activities and that kind of you know really horrible kind of social dynamics in a way that genuinely resonated with a lot of female viewers and even so it's just the fact that it was including those kind of aspects of you know what for many people is everyday life everyday kind of abuse that people receive because of you know petty small-minded individuals on the internet it's it, it, again it shouldn't be revolutionary or you know a controversial perspective suggests that Maybe that's kind of problematic. Well, I think really the bottom line here is something that occurred to me that genuinely the last straw for a lot of them appears to have been Jen twerking with Megan Thee Stallion, which, you know, actually had a reason. There was a plot point behind that. But that seemed to be, oh, no, they've ruined everything now. My first thought was, it's funny how they didn't mind if Baron Zemo was dancing in a Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but what is one of the most famous sequences in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe? It's Star-Lord dancing, which he does more than once. That is literally, well, it was all right then. Why is it not all right now? Exactly. Uh, don't forget that Groot was dancing a lot as well. <laughs> well, I think we should probably move on to less contentious areas. Although, maybe in its own different way, this is quite contentious. It's the return, although it was signposted in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, of Tim Roth as Emil Blomsky stroke the abomination. I had genuinely thought they're not going to bother with that first Hulk movie. They're going to leave it as it was, because it, as good as it is in its own right, it doesn't quite work, it doesn't belong, the characters don't mesh with everything else going on, it's got a different lead actor, and yet, they've brought him back, they've brought Betty Ross back in What If, Tim Blake Nelson is coming back as the leader in the future film, so it was a genuine nice surprise that they've embraced that. They even include a nod to Ed Norton in the joke Bruce Banner makes, and I think Tim Roth is having the time of his life, because Blonde in the first Hulk film is 
a little one-dimensional. He's just an angry military man who's like, I want to be the best at being a military man. Can't I have that super soldier thing? And that's basically all of it. So he then turns into a monster and goes on a rampage that doesn't make a lot of sense. But here, he's loving the fact that he's playing someone where you're not 100% sure whether he has reformed or not. Yeah, I mean, that first Hulk film is really weird. And it is strange that they kind of reincorporated it. But then is it actually that strange, given that, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire were Spider-Men in the third Spider-Man MCU film. So they are kind of engaging more broadly with the the kind of wider history of the non-MCU Marvel films and that, you know, the Ed Norton Hulk film that has been kind of disregarded more widely. So yeah, it's really interesting. I do think the, the inclusion of the Blonsky character was kind of like a catalyst that got a lot of things going. So I definitely wasn't opposed to it. And I think, think the weird ethical implications of having Jen represent him were also explored in a quite interesting way so it wasn't for nothing and I also love that the fact that in his support group at his retreat there are a lot of villains that just wouldn't work in any other context in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like Sabres and the Porcupine you could hardly really have them as major antagonists in anything but they found a way to use them and that's brilliant but I have a slight problem with the appearance of the Wrecking Crew in this because I think they were very much underused I mean it starts with that brilliant gag about where did you get those things did you rob an Asgardian construction worker uh yeah we did but why I was a bit unsure was for anyone who doesn't know them the whole kind of backstory in the comics is that they're a group of convicts who are a wide-ranging assortment of convicts I mean on the one hand you've got Power Driver who's basically just a thug who's been locked up at the other end of the scale there's Thunderball who's a genius scientist who tried to steal back some of his stolen research and was framed and ended up behind bars and they escape and they do have these Asgardian tools but basically they think people are committing victimless crimes should be left alone and they have supporters in people like S.H.I.E.L.D. and Damage Control who agree with them who think that guy's stealing money from a bank that belongs to nobody or to a billionaire who you know has it all insured why are we bothering with that and here they're just kind of they're not even really comic relief they bungle a bit and then aren't really seen that much again aren't explored that much I mean I would hope given that there is a movie Secret Wars coming up and one of the defining things I remember about Secret Wars was that when you've got at the beginning all the villains jostling who should be in charge and they basically say are you all insane if we just do what Doctor Doom tells us we've won already so hopefully they're building up to that but after the kind of promotional fanfare that was given to them being in it you know that shot in the trailer where they looked really exciting felt they didn't capitalise on them enough No there's certain kind of groups of let's say alternative heroes that Marvel just hasn't been able to, to kind of tap into as much yet I'm not sure the, the genre is maybe ready but yeah I remember when there was talks of like a Sinister Six film and stuff and then that never materialised I think there's definitely you know room to experiment more with these kind of more philosophical questions that these sorts of characters kind of drive so yeah they're vigilantes they're not great but you know is it is it okay when it's a victimless crime I think those are, would be really interesting things to explore in the future definitely well before we come on to mentioning vigilantes the real big surprise of this series and a character that was so glad to well I mean we had already seen him back but let's save that for a second because a couple of other characters to get through first of all we can't not mention madison with a y but it's not where you think i love the fact that you know she's thrown into all this madness she doesn't care she's just a party girl who just accepts what's in front of her and gets on with what she's doing and the fact she forms what's possibly a romantic bond with wong 
I love the way they're able to show a lighter side to characters like him without compromising. You can imagine if Doctor Strange had wandered in while they were watching TV, he might have snapped back into classic Wong. There's that, there's Donny Blaze, the magician who I think a lot of people misheard that as Johnny Blaze, as in the original Ghost Rider, and were disappointed when he wasn't because, you know, he was standing in the middle of a lot of fire and summoning demons, but it wasn't him, it was a kind of David Blaine style character. But his storyline sent up Camatage just after Doctor Strange's Multiverse of Madness. And again, that's showing you can have a laugh with these things in one vehicle and be serious with them in another. Yeah, and I do think there's like elements of Madison and also the Donny Blaze character, even like the Leapfrog character. These are all really silly characters, but at the same time, they're used in a way that draws attention to maybe important issues or they're actually allowed to kind of develop in a way that, you know, does more, you know, she's more than just like a like a bimbo, right? She actually develops like a quite touching relationship to Wong. I'm mentioning Leapfrog. We can't not mention the storyline with Luke Jacobson. <laughs> the designer of costumes for superheroes who comparing him to the ones that appeared in the Netflix series who made sort of the original Daredevil costume and so on who you know were people working furtively in secret off the radar and he's a flamboyant designer who wants the world to know who he is and is sued by Leapfrog for making a suit that didn't protect him enough and yeah that is one of those great unanswered questions who makes these costumes and what happens if they don't work properly and now it's been addressed yeah it's great that was a great character i wasn't entirely sure why she hulk outfit like her courtroom outfit was such a problem for her because there are you know shocks for tall larger ladies <laughs> i guess it did lead to the introduction of the luke jacobson character who was you know a great addition and that then brings me into it's not fair to say the real highlight but if you're a fan kind of the real moment that absolutely is the icing on the cake about this series which is the reappearance the proper reappearance rather than just saying a couple of lines of Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock Daredevil which again the way he was brought in where you just see a Daredevil helmet in Luke's design studio and then obviously he runs into Jen in court then runs into her on the street when they're up to their various superhero antics and it's brilliant that they develop a relationship for what's initially kind of an antagonistic physical spark and it's lovely the way that that develops and it does make you think because again without compromising the original incarnation of Daredevil from the Netflix series it shows his lighter side which is only hinted at in that as I say without compromising the original vision of the character and it makes you wonder I mean we've previously talked about Jessica Jones on here and we did mention there's those couple of episodes where when Jessica's dating her neighbour you do see her lighten up slightly it is quite clear that they're all going to reappear at some point down the line and hopefully Hopefully we'll get all of them treated like that as well. Yeah, I mean, my heart really swelled when Daredevil walks <laughs> up. I thought those were the best moments of the series. And you know what? Why shouldn't they have a chance at being all right, doing okay, having friends, having relationships? There's no reason why these kinds of characters shouldn't you know, be put in that position at some point. You know, it doesn't all have to be you know, doom and gloom. Well, it's kind of the reverse of when you look at Infinity War and Endgame, you've got comic characters like Star-Lord, like Ant-Man and the Wasp, suddenly given more serious things to deal with. So if it could be done in that direction, surely it could be done with the other. Surely we can see Frank Castle that's it. Can we see Frank Castle having a bit of a laugh and a joke? I'm not sure we can, but if Danny Rand cracked a smile, that would be quite nice. Yeah, it's almost as if people are multifaceted and experience multiple <laughs> emotions. Well, we do have some setup for presumably future invention here in that Bruce Banner was taken off to Sakaar and returns with his son. That's clearly heading towards something in the future. But also, for unexplained reasons, Wong frees Emil Blonsky again in a post credit scene. What is going on there what 
is this link between them that's not been explored so far? It must be more than just they go into ultimate fighting tournaments. Yeah, no, given that we have the multiverse and given all these like portals and all the stuff that's going on, there's definitely a lot left to explore with both of these characters. And also, you know, Hulk's son, who was a bit of a random inclusion, but still, it's setting things up, isn't it? It's classic Marvel. Okay, well, I would say there's only one thing left for me to ask now, but it's going to be too obvious if I ask if you had the ability to transform into a big green rage monster, what would you use it for? So instead, I'm going to ask Miriam, if you stole some tools from an Asgardian construction worker, what would you use them for? That's a good question. I would love to use them to go and visit Kevin. I think Kevin gets a bit lonely sometimes, and (laughs) I'd like to have a chat with him and maybe, you know, rewrite reality. That would be fun. And what character would you insist that you brought in? Just bring in Daredevil all the time, in everything. (laughs) Miriam, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.